If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate can be your strength. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. It may even be a helpful tool in managing cognitive decline. Flava Naturals Dark Chocolate Bars and Cocoa Powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate with great flavor and minimal sugar. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. There you'll find the extensive research behind cocoa flavanols benefits and great recipes too. That's flavanaturals.com. flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to take a look at how integrative medicine might play a role at the community level. Another way of putting it is, uh, you know, we've got all these sophisticated uh, natural techniques. Uh, We've got uh, diet interventions. We've got uh, exhortations to healthier lifestyle. We've got uh, vitamin supplements, herbs. Uh, But is this an elite medicine that can only reach... um, say, a single-digit percentage of the population, or can we mainstream it in communities such as today's guest uh, resides in? Uh, She is Dr. Ramona Wallace. Uh, Her training is as an osteopathic physician. She is a DO uh, and was trained at Michigan State. Uh, She resides in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Now, Kalamazoo is the kind of place that a lot of people think of as, uh, you know, the dark side of the moon. Uh, But it is uh, it really exemplifies uh, middle America. Uh, Little known facts. Kalamazoo uh, was once the manufacturing hub for checker cabs, Gibson guitars and the Kalamazoo corset comes from Kalamazoo. Uh, So uh, it's got a claim to fame uh, and it's a good place to live. So uh, welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Wallace. It's a pleasure having you here on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to talk about my journey over the past uh, 10 years or so. So thank you very much. Indeed. Well, your training is is uh, conventional training, but you're a DO. Uh, DOs enjoy a parity with uh, MDs in hospitals, uh, and in terms of their uh, scope of uh, ability to treat patients, there are uh, osteopathic uh, surgeons, there are osteopathic uh, neurologists. Uh, many go on to do uh, subspecialties and are virtually indistinguishable from MDs. But uh, what is distinct about the training of DOs? Because there is something, uh, at least they pay lip service to a more holistic approach in, in osteopathic school. Isn't that correct? They do. They do. My upbringing very, was very congruent with osteopathic medicine. My uh, mother was actually from Budapest, Hungary, and it was all about nutrition, health, lifestyle, take care of yourself. 
Um, so it really fit in with the osteopathic uh, philosophy and manual medicine um, and taking care of your body structurally. But I'm also a certified um, practitioner in, in through the Institute of Functional Medicine, which uh, came very naturally to me. It was interesting, uh, about 26 years into my clinical practice as a DO doing primary care, there was something that I just was missing and seemed to be just a little bit more. And this pharmaceutical approach worked somewhat, but, but there was just something. And then I came across the Institute for Functional Medicine, went to a conference, and it was like, oh, I'm home. <laughs> I'm with all the people who are like-minded and that have found um, ways to get to the root cause to help so many more people. And uh, it was really unique because um, a lot of people said, oh, functional medicine, anti-aging, et cetera, is for very wealthy people. And here I am practicing in, in underserved communities at federally qualified health centers. And I'm thinking, no, no, this is right where I need to be. And this is where I need to restore function, not only of the patient, but of the community for which the patient resides. So it fit perfect. Well, that, that's really interesting because uh, uh, sometimes uh, integrative medicine, functional medicine is, is equated with uh, luxury medicine. Uh, I practice here uh, in Manhattan, uh, on the Upper East Side, uh, adjacent to uh, Central Park. It's a pricey real estate area. Uh, from one of the windows in my practice, you can see the Plaza Hotel uh, and the clientele are, are, are affluent. And there are hundreds and hundreds of integrated practitioners, uh, perhaps within the, you know, the, the few adjacent zip codes that comprise Manhattan. But tell us a little bit about your community and the types of patients that you see. Well, actually, in the federally qualified health center, I typically see patients who have Medicaid, Medicare, they're underinsured or not insured, um, a lot of people who are homeless. And what was terrific, I was in uh, private practice for many years, and it just felt like I couldn't do everything that I needed to do to provide the patient the social safety net. And then... All of a sudden, the social determinants of health came out, and I found in a federally qualified health center, they really are structured to support that and make that social safety net. So it took some of the burden off of me as an individual provider, but it allowed me to look at the patient from many different lenses and say, hey, it's not just here's a pill for your ill. This is how can we help change the allostatic load, look at you from all lenses, and let's get you better. Let's find out the root cause and let's see what we can do. And my goal was to not focus solely on traditional osteopathic medicine or allopathic medicine or functional medicine, but really what my goal was is to treat the individual. And that's what they do, even in your suburb, in my suburb, N equals one. Everybody exactly. has the their own story. Everybody has their own genetic background, their own epigenetics, and there's no two timelines that I see are the same. 
but what I do see are commonalities. Well, how do you uh, cope with, uh, you know, the solution uh, for a lot of primary physicians who see uh, not affluent patients, you know, patients who, uh, uh, frankly, are uh, poor, uh, who have uh, Medicare or Medicaid, uh, is, is to simply increase volume, you know, to make it kind of a, a conveyor belt and to see as many as 20, 30, 40 patients a day, you know, quickly handing out prescriptions uh, because that's kind of the fastest and most convenient way to process bodies and then apply for reimbursement. Uh, I have the luxury of uh, a practice that's not insurance-based. Uh, patients pay a significant premium for my time, and I may spend as much as an hour or an hour and a half working out complex problems of patients. So how do you adapt that to a community setting uh, where the reimbursement model is, is different? Well, that's, that's exactly what I faced for many years. And it was interesting, the article that was just um, published about a year ago, Journal of um, General Internal Medicine, where it said that in order to hit the USPSTF guidelines, you need 8.6 hours with the patient. So mm -hmm. you need to add, you'll have to have a 27-hour workday, right? But <laughs> right. What right. I to really the math like, on that, yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. So what I really enjoy um, is that functional medicine, IFM going through their training, really supported my ability to um, connect with a patient, looking through a different lens, and really helping with my skill set to understand where they're coming from and really develop a relationship with the person where we could have continuity, we could have follow-up, we could take this life journey together in primary care. So that's why I started teaching um, here for Western Michigan Homer Stryker School of Medicine is because I wanted to help the residents understand that the learning model is through the lens of functional medicine and restoring function to the patient. So it has taught me some, um, it's taught me a curriculum that I can actually sit and have a conversation with a patient and get to know a patient, begin to put things together and really help them understand the basis of where they're coming from and what may have gotten them there and how to get them out of where they're currently at. So it's, it's, it was a pretty rigorous training. Um, it was worth every minute because it really helped me hone down my skill set. But it, it also drove me to understand nutrition like none other. I am so excited about what it taught me about nutrients and nutrient deficiency and how to implement that in a primary care practice. Well, let's take an example. Uh, you know, let's uh, use the example of, uh, which is fairly typical in primary care, uh, especially among uh, poor patients from underserved areas. Uh, a patient comes in, uh, he is significantly uh, overweight by BMI or body composition, uh, is suffering from uh, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, uh, and high cholesterol. Now, the conventional training, as you well know, uh, will dictate that they be on, you know, perhaps 
for or more medications. Uh, they can take something for weight loss. Now we have uh, uh, Wegovi, we have uh, Ozempic, we've got Mujaro, if you can get a hold of it, because uh, there's a tremendous shortage because uh, uh, all the Hollywood influencers are talking about it and people are glomming it up so that the people who really need it can't get it. Uh, you've got a statin drug to bring uh, the cholesterol down. You've got uh, a whole array of blood pressure medications and you've got uh, a raft of diabetes medications. So there's the patient's already on four medications. Maybe they don't feel so well. So you can probably fit in a, an antidepressant uh, because uh, they're feeling kind of sloggy. Uh, how would it, a functional medicine approach uh, differ from that? I mean, it, it might not preclude using those medications, but uh, would you take a, a different approach to that patient? Oh, absolutely. I, and that's why I really like being at a, um, and working with the underserved population because by no means do I, uh, view my patient as adipose tissue. I don't view them as a uterus. I don't view them as just, you know, a myocardium. I view them as actually a human being. And if somebody were to come in, I really like Again, it's their story, but I also like to know what their food IQ is and talk about functional nutrition. And macronutrients versus micronutrients and deficiency does not equate with BMI. What I have found is that... In other words, what you're saying is uh, you can be overweight, but you can be undernourished, Right. Absolutely. Very well put. Exactly. And I'm currently doing a uh, nutritional deficiency database, not like the CDC is doing that's looking at the DNA and um, the SMPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms, where you get uh, nutrient deficiencies from a a genetic aberration. Hmm. But I'm looking at... Give us an example of what that might look like, because... um, I think what you're saying is that uh, when you do something like an NHANES study, which is a nutritional survey, you may you do blood tests on people and you say, well, do you have a low vitamin D? Do you have a low magnesium? You know, we find that an incredibly high percentage of Americans have low levels of some of these critical nutrients, zinc and vitamin C and whatnot. But what you're saying is that a person's individual makeup dictates how much they need. This would be called biochemical individuality, right? Absolutely. Incredibly well put. And I've heard in a few of your podcasts, you guys talk about that. That's why I was pretty excited that you were looking at the, so what I, and when I first started this database, I looked at 325 people out of 1,600 and identified these 325 people as having at risk for malnutrition based upon the WHO guidelines mm-hmm. for malnutrition, either micronutrient deficiency or macronutrient insufficiency or excess. So it's really interesting because of that 325, I came out with 96 of them actually having clinical scurvy. Wow. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Okay, and so this is these, these, this is not like, uh, you know, British sailors, you know, on a long ocean voyage where they're being given hardtack and, uh, you know, uh, uh, rum. Uh, this is a, in a community where uh, there are markets, uh, there are fresh vegetables and fruits available, but it's as if they're 
they're marooned on a long ocean voyage mm-hmm. and suffering from scurvy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, our biggest lake, I could pretty much paddleboard across here in the middle of <laughs> Michigan. So I don't think that is because we have sailors lost at sea. No, but it, it's um, one of the most interesting things. Uh, Linus Pauling has always been one of um my the forefathers that I look at is and this guy really had some great knowledge, Jorgesent and the vitamin C studies that he did. But vitamin C is particularly interesting to me because our bodies can't synthesize it. Mm-hmm. And even learning about the whole study that um mice can synthesize vitamin C, lions can, that's why they don't need to eat fruit, right? So there's so many other species that can synthesize um, vitamin C, except for us, humans. We need to get that from external sources. But the B-complex vitamins can go through synthesis, methylation, etc. Um, but what's, what's curious is that vitamin C seems to be one of those that if you don't get from external sources, you can deplete relatively quickly mm-hmm. a month at a time. Two months if without it, you're going to be in real trouble. And the evidence base behind these micronutrient deficiencies is on case-to-case-to-case studies. There's no randomized controlled clinical trials. And it's really been interesting because the database that I have is showing that vitamin C deficiency is part of this thing that was termed in 2003 by Robert Heaney, long latency deficiency disease. Hmm. Kind of got lost in the literature until 2017 or 18. It popped back up again. But really inadequate intake of specific nutrients may produce more than one disease and may produce disease by more than one mechanism and he went on to say something like, and, and more, and it may require more time for the consequences of this morbidity to be sufficiently evidenced and recognizable as disease. And it, it was really prevalent when I had this woman come into my clinic. She, she works at a factory. She works pretty hard. She does 40 to 50 hours a week. She's a pretty heavy smoker. And she had lost her teeth sometime in the past. Um, she Her diet's kind of fair, factory work, fast food, that stuff. Um, and I thought, you know what? She doesn't eat that well. I did a 24-hour um, nutrient recall or what she does eat in the past 24 hours. I usually use the um, NHANES information or data collecting mm-hmm. Um, to quickly elicit that information. I think there's an app for that. You can actually, health professionals can utilize an app to quickly assess a person's nutritional adequacy. And it's wonderful. People are creatures of habit. So what she wasn't eating wasn't sufficient. Plus, she was smoking. Her vitamin C level was less than 0.1. It was not even registered. Her B6 was 2. Her vitamin D was 12. Her B12 was 255. Mm -hmm. Her BMI was 35. She had migraines, she had mood yeah. disorders, she yeah. wasn't coping, and she had a STEMI at 40. Okay. Isn't so, that crazy? So, so that would be a, a, I think that's, let's translate that, that's an MI, that's a, 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 and a bad kind of heart attack, uh, which is ST elevation MI. 
Um, so to break down the jargon for our listeners, um, wow. But she did not have like bleeding gums or, or petechiae, you know, easy bruisability on the skin that was visible. That would be a tip off to vitamin C deficiency. She just had a myriad of problems that could be masked by her, you know, uh, other medical issues, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so case after case after case of this started developing. And these micronutrient deficiencies, they run in a pack. Sometimes I see just one, but oftentimes people, as you said in the beginning, vitamin D deficiency. We live in Michigan. Guess what? (laughs) We're going to be all vitamin D deficient, right, at some point in time. Probably the majority of your practice, the majority of your practice, because when when people come to me, you know, they're, they're, they're preaching to the choir. They, they are very aware of nutrition. They want to consult a nutritional expert. There's a lot of buy-in. They, many of them are listening to my radio program. They're, they're loaded for bear with a, a wide variety of nutrients. The people you see uh, are, you know, to use a, a little pejorative term, it's sort of the unwashed multitude of people who have very little exposure to nutritional information. And, and also, they don't have the means to buy tons of vitamins and supplements and natural products. Absolutely. And to get access uh, to food. So I worked with the Michigan Academy of Family Practice on their documentary about food deserts. And when I was working with Esther Dyson and the way to Wellville on trying to, uh, she's uh, an accelerator of communities to help them get healthier. It really brought to the forefront how much we live, even whether it's rural or urban, we still live in significant food deserts. Indeed. Um, what's interesting, too, is that um, you have started the, you, you, you alluded to it earlier. Let's talk a little bit about it. The U.S. First Functional Medicine Residency Program, which is training medical students and young doctors in this approach to healthcare. Uh, that's really a breakthrough because, uh, you know, functional medicine, integrative medicine, call it what you will, alternative medicine is anathema to many medical schools, and yet you pulled out quite a feat there locally, right? Oh, let me tell you, <laughs> it wasn't without a few bumps or bruises along the way, but doing this database to um, demonstrate the need for better nutrition or better understanding of nutrition. We've got Kellogg's right here in our backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and Battle Creek so is near Kalamazoo, food- right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So that it's very important and it's um, yeah, on the agenda for our medical school to really help the underserved in Nutrient deficiency and broccoli is really not the sexiest subject. (laughs) 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 Eat your broccoli, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, micronutrient deficiencies is has gone uh, the way of the dodo, and and it's not studied, and it's Mm -hmm. really profoundly uh, a huge gap in the medical education. So We, we tend to um, think of these diseases, these nutrition deficiency diseases, the diseases of the uh, the 18th century, the 19th century, you know, scurvy, berry, berry, uh, etc. Uh, they've been vanquished by, you know, modern, uh, you know, hygiene and, uh, you know, 
fortification of foods, but uh, there are what are called subclinical insufficiencies where just because you're not dying of a critical nutritional disease, it may not necessarily mean that you don't get enough magnesium or vitamin D or vitamin C or zinc or some of these critical nutrients that are essential for health. Absolutely. And functional nutrition and long latency deficiency, to me, in the underserved and in the overserved, it doesn't matter. Vitamins are, nutrition is universal and it builds your body's resiliency. And without really understanding who's at risk for nutrient deficiency, we're, we're using heuristic medicine instead of really looking at where the deficiencies are, who's at risk, and we're not really going into the deep dive. So that's why the through this residency program, I'm really trying to help give the residents another lens and more tools in their toolkit to better approach how they address health care and personalized medicine in their patients. And by using the word heuristic, which I barely know the meaning of, I think I know the meaning of it, it, it has to do with the fact that a lot of medicine is dictated by algorithms, you know, paint-by-numbers medicine, like one-size-fits-all recommendations that are not really tailored to the individual that are not personalized. I, I think that's what you're getting at, right? That is exactly right. And then I'm in this um, the study looking at um, our AI technology, digital twins, and setting up algorithms. And AI is good, but you still need personalized medicine. N equals one. I've got to see the person in front of me. I have to know their story. And I really have to know what's important to them. Mm-hmm in order to be able to deliver any type of health care. So. Right. Because you can make, uh, you know, it's, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, as they sometimes say in Kalamazoo, <laughs> uh, although I don't know if the water is fit to drink uh, anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, clearly you have to get to where a person lives, discover their motivation, discover their challenges uh, in order to affect transformation, because that's what it's all about, is that we doctors... Uh, are not simply uh, medication prescribers. We we hopefully are in a position to transform people's health. So great stuff. Uh, we want to pause because we divide I our podcast. Another. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're, no, I was just going to tell you a um, a really fascinating quick story about just on what you're saying. Is well, that I had a patient come let's, in. Let's actually said, tease okay, to that in wait? part two. Uh, so you know. We'll okay. preview that. Uh, we divide our podcast into two parts, and I want to hear you know as many anecdotes as we can about your actual practice. Uh, our guest is Dr. Ramona Wallace. Uh, Dr. Wallace is an osteopathic physician uh, trained at Michigan State. Uh, she currently practices in Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan. Uh, she is uh, certified by the Institute of Functional Medicine, and uh, she's making a, a, a big splash in, in kind of a quiet way by uh, being a role model for how we can uh, how we can uh, integrate uh, natural approaches uh, into the care of just ordinary Americans, Americans who may not have the means to access luxury care. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. <laughs> 